I'm Dr. Frances McGarry, podcast host of First Online with Franz, There's No Place Like Art. As a teacher, scholar, actor, and now author, I have witnessed firsthand the transformative powers of the arts. Oh, but lately, I find myself, as did David Brooks, he wrote an op-ed piece called The Power of Art in a Political Age. And we share this feeling of being enmeshed in politics, the predictable partisan outrages, the campaign horse race analysis, the Trump scandal du jour. And yet, like Brooks, I'm trying to take countermeasures by fleeing to the arts. The 95th Academy Awards have come and gone, and with it, a palpable feeling that everything, everywhere, and all at once can happen. What we see in movies matters. It affects our hobbies, our career choices, our emotions, and even our identities. Well, <laughs> let me tell you, my guest today, Naomi McDougall-Jones, is an award-winning filmmaker, author, speaker, and change maker. She's fueled by the knowledge that storytelling is the most powerful tool available to shift the world. Welcome, Naomi. Thank you so much for having me. You betcha. You know, as an actor and activist, what changes have been made to advance the work of women in Hollywood? And how much of these quote unquote, you know, grand promises if any, have come to fruition? What's your experience with that? So I think whenever I answer this question, it's really important to give both sides. It's important to acknowledge the incredible progress we have made, and we have made it. I graduated acting school in 2008. So that's sort of when I first encountered the industry. And I first encountered the industry as a filmmaker in 2011. And there are definite differences between the industry we had then and the industry we have now. People know they should be embarrassed if they don't have women in their <laughs> cast and crew. They, they know they should be embarrassed if they don't have BIPOC folks in their cast and crew. The percentages have changed a little, and there's certainly more attention being paid to what kinds of stories we're telling um, and what those stories are communicating to the world. I think sexual harassment and sexual assault within the industry is still present, but significantly less present than it was at the time that I entered the industry. Yeah, there's, there is now a message of shame. That's there's a message of shame. And the fact that intimacy coordinators are now a thing on sets, which, I mean, that job didn't exist when I entered the industry, that makes a big difference. It makes a big difference, particularly for actresses doing intimate scenes. So that's the good news. You know, what's amazing yeah. to Naomi, you know, to your point is not only how long it took to get here, mm -hmm. but for me, there's also a very scary feeling in that we can regress with the loss of dots. I mean, that was a given for me. Yeah. I mean, I was part of that woman's movement and, yeah. and now it's gone. So like, yeah, that other side, Naomi, like what's right. happening now. Yeah, so that's that's the bad news. <laughs> so the bad news is the bad news is sort of twofold. A is that 
Hollywood has worked really hard to make the appearance of change and the numbers don't totally reflect that. So I'll talk about in a minute about that in a minute. And the second thing is that, as you say, the stuff tends to be cyclical. So I write about this in my book, that if you look at the history of women in film, it's kind of this 25-year cycle where suddenly there's some big PR thing and everyone's like, oh my God, we, there's no women around. <laughs> we got to get some women. We didn't know if we'd known. We'd have, of course, been hiring them. And then there's this yeah, right. big moment and then, and everyone gets outraged and then people go, oh, great, that's done. And they look away and you can see the backslide. Now, generally, so far, it's always moved forward a little. You never go back to where you were before that moment happened, but it's there's no guarantee. It's been tiny right. progressions. I did the math on this. That if we keep making progress at the same percentage points each of these 25 year cycles, it'll be something like 287 years before we hit parity, uh, gender parity, which I don't have time for. <laughs> You all. I but, definitely uh, don't have. I'll be yeah. dead by then. So, so I think <laughs> I'll come back and haunt you. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be haunting. <laughs> so, I think the most important message is that we have to keep pushing. We can't allow complacency to set in. There tends to be a, a narrative that, oh, well, now that change has started to happen, it is inevitable that it will continue. And now we don't have to worry. We can take our hands off the steering wheel. And that is definitely not true. Yeah. And on the numbers side, there's been more changes on screen. So audiences might feel like, oh, yeah, I'm seeing more complex female characters in leading roles. I'm seeing more BIPOC folks in leading roles, which is true. But in terms of the people who are actually telling the stories, the writers, the directors, the producers, the people, the executives, the people who are controlling the narratives, who are really pointing the camera and, and shaping the nuances of the story, those numbers have changed very, very little. Aside from some few high profile examples, we, we've moved a couple of percentage points and those percentage points have already started backsliding from their peak a few years ago. So that's the thing we need to be really vigilant of. And the danger is that audiences feel like change has happened again because they're seeing these changes on screen. And there's this way subtler but more important thing behind the screen that isn't yeah, this, very much. It's the, the vigilance. The vigilance. You know, we have to constantly yeah. be vigilant. And as much as it was wonderful to see Asian Americans and recognize them in the film and all of that, so, so exciting. We cannot become complacent. Well, I thought everything everywhere all at once was like one of the most exciting films I've seen made in the last yeah. 10 years. I yeah. loved it. It's amazing. And there's a cynical part of this that I just want to point out on the Asian American thing, which is that China is now driving Hollywood. It's most of their money financing films. Really? And as a result of it's it's their audience driving films. There's an incredible book about this called The Red Carpet that tracks how sense Chinese censorship laws are now dictating content because the studios can't make a movie that won't get past the Chinese censors. And so there are some things like obviously Taiwan can't be mentioned in movies, things like that, but it's also way subtler and more pernicious things like anything to do with democracy anything to do with an underling in any kind of job or anything rising up and like questioning the power of somebody in charge of them. So although Hollywood's getting a lot of points for more Asian American representation, 
there's actually a very cynical business reason that that group in particular is gaining advancement. Now, that's again, that's not to take anything away from right. everything everywhere. Well, like I'm thrilled that we're getting more representation in that category, but Hollywood shouldn't be getting karma points. It's getting in the public yeah. for yeah. that piece of it. Wow. I had no idea. This is scary. It's, you mentioned your book. How did that start and how is it connected to where you are today? Sure. So I did this TED Talk called What It's Like to Be a Woman in Hollywood, which I did the year before Me Too. So I did it that in the fall of 2016. And the day that the Harvey Weinstein story broke, I got an email from TED.com, the TED people. And they, and they literally said, your talk is going to be on the homepage of our website tomorrow. Get ready. That was the email. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> All right. So back up a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Okay. To where we go, we're going there. Before you were approached to TED Talk and before the mm -hmm. Me Too thing, what guided you to that point? I mean, what were you doing? Yeah. Well, How did so, you I know? <laughs> so, like I said, I graduated from acting school in 2008. I got out. I was an actress with no real idea that I was going to become a writer or a filmmaker or anything else. I just wanted to be an actress. And of course, ran into all of the sexual harassment and assault and, you know, degradation that you expect to run into as an actress. I sort of accepted that at that point as, as just like what the Don't industry catch. is, Yeah, but got annoyed very quickly, primarily by how stupid the female roles I was at. <laughs> That's a whole new episode. That's a whole new episode. I just started feeling like I, I didn't, I didn't choose this life career that involves a lot of sacrifice to play like the really supportive girlfriend or naked body number five. Like I, I came here to tell stories that was we're going to change the world and through acting and that's not what's happening. So naively, I thought, oh, well, it must just be that people aren't writing great parts for women. I could write great parts for women. <laughs> so with all my, uh, you know, 24 year old enthusiasm, I wrote a feature film with great female characters and my friend and I were like, we'll just make it. And we raised $80,000 and we made this movie, um, Imagine I'm Beautiful, which I'm so proud of. And But it was that experience. So as we were trying to make that movie, the number of conversations we had with older men and women who were trying to mentor us, who said thing literally out loud, things like, well, girls, you know that you're going to have to get a male producer on board at some point, just so that people will trust you with their money. In 2011. 2011, you know, women just spend. Right, money. right. We don't numbers <laughs> our brains. It's very complicated. Boggles the mind. It's just... Boggles the mind. And that is the thing I think they, that has changed. People wouldn't say those things out loud anymore, even though they might think them. And then there was just this never-ending refrain that people kept saying to us of, well, people don't want to see films about women. You're going to have to make something else. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Women are 51% population. They buy most of the movie tickets. Presumably at least some proportion of men are interested in also women. Like it just, the math didn't make sense. So, and I just couldn't believe that people were saying these things out loud to us in meetings. So when Imagine I'm Beautiful came out in Q&As just after the film, I just started telling people these stories because I thought it was so outrageous and that people just needed to know. Because at that time, some people in like in little corners were talking about what this was like in the industry. But if you can remember back then, like very few people were saying anything publicly about it. And I just out of like indignance, 
indignation. I was just like, people just need to know. So I started talking about it and very quickly was informed by people I respected. And in some cases, an Oscar winning female producer who said to me, if you keep talking about this, you will never have a career. Like you will be blacklisted if you keep talking about this, which just made me more mad. (laughs) I Which made I, me be like, well, now I'm definitely talking about this. Oh, okay. So then, Good for I, you, that so is, the, <laughs> it's an, is it the red hair? You know, yeah, yeah. that would drive so it's, you. It's the, it's the Scottish outrage. So then I kind of quickly got put on the global speaking circuit, talking about this stuff, partly because there weren't that many people willing to say it out loud because it was true about getting blacklisted. Then, Bravo to you! Thank you for being so young and so confident to just. I dare you. That's what you did. I dare you. Was I just want to let you know that was one of the things. I'm like, I gotta have this (laughs) on my show because that's how I am. I dare you. That's been my whole life. Yeah, go on, keep going what you were saying. Oh, so then that you will never you you will be blacklisted. I mean, just yeah, just inhale and exhale. In truth, I had to have a serious conversation with myself at that point because, I mean, this this woman is like one of the most famous female producers at all. To hear that coming from her. Right. And she was not saying it as a threat. She was, oh. in her mind, she was trying to help me, right? Matter of fact, yeah. Right. This is how it is, young woman. So the conversation I had with myself, and it was around this time that I'd been invited to do the TED Talk, which is a different thing. You know, I'd been speaking live to rooms of people about this, but this, you know, I didn't know that it would go as viral as it did, but I knew that once you do a TED Talk, that's going to be among the top Google search results when people search your name for probably the rest of your life. And so to have that platform is such a huge responsibility. It is. And how did you handle the, what could be an onerous ordeal? And turn it into something that went viral. Yeah. And at that point, I was still primarily trying to be an actor. So again, like that's a very, that's a specifically dangerous thing. If that's going to be when people Google you, that's what comes up. But the conversation I had with myself was, okay, now that I see how deep the sexism in the system goes and knowing the, how much the stories we watch matter and impact, as you said at the beginning of the show, everything about the all of society, about how we think about each other and in ourselves. Knowing the stakes of that and knowing how bad this is, somebody has to do this. And I've been handed this opportunity to be that voice. And if the cost of that is my career... That's actually a price I'm willing to pay. Like in the scheme of history, the world, whatever, if that's what it costs, then I'll do that. You're calling it out and Cassie Hutchinson. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now I did have to have a shot of whiskey before I went on stage and did a TED talk as a result of that, because it was one of the most terrifying I've ever done in my entire life. Is it prescriptive in terms of this is how you do a TED talk? How does that come So. It's prescriptive in the sense that you get 17, uh, 18 minutes. It can only be 18 minutes. It can be less than that, but 18 is the maximum. And you cannot have note cards. You cannot have notes of any kind. You have your slides, but your talk has to be completely memorized. And you only get one shot. And this one is a doubly nerve-wracking thing because it's in front of a live audience and there are no redos. So 
mine was a two-day TED conference and I was on the second day and I spent the whole day in the first audience watching other people go. And some people forgot their speech in the middle, some people, but the really terrifying thing was that you could tell some people just didn't hit it. And it's not that they forgot, it's not that, but like their energy was off or whatever. And you could just tell that the talk wasn't going to go anywhere. We, as act, we get that. Yeah. We know what an audience is right. getting, you know, exactly. what doing, right? And then you could see just a couple of talks truly connect. And you knew, as an actor, you also know that sometimes you can be fully prepared and you don't hit it. So the next, again, oh, shot God. of whiskey, I listened to Defying Gravity from Wicked on repeat <laughs> about five times before walking on stage. And yeah. then you get one shot and I, and luckily I apparently hit it because it did end up. I love it. Qu- quite viral. So you'd ask about the book. So just to quickly finish. So after the talk went viral, a year after I did it, in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein thing, I got actually an agent contacted me, a book agent, and said, would you like to write a book about this? I think there's a book here. And I was like, sure. <laughs> Someone asked you that question, you say yes and figure it out later. And so then I wrote a book proposal and and he sold the book proposal and I got to write a book. And the book is? The book is called The Wrong Kind of Women Inside Our Revolution to Dismantle the Gods of Hollywood. Love it. And we can <laughs> get a copy of that. Let's make sure I put that on the blog so we can uh, promote that. I'll put that on my reading list. Thank uh, you. You know, after this and Defying Gravity. I love that. You- <laughs> because this is what it's all about. Yeah. It's, we have to go against the weight of the moment. and of the culture. What kind of things give you hope, Naomi? You know, I don't want this to be this whole downer thing, you know, like I said in my my introduction, we can be consumed by yeah. the political culture that's going on. It just blows my mind that a six-year-old shot a teacher. Yeah. You know, and she's a redhead. The teacher talked. Oh. I had a video of her and she was talking huh. about what happened. I'm on a redhead kick, I guess. (laughs) I have to shut it off. I just can't do it. How do you face things like that and not not shut it off, but shout it out? Yeah. So I truly believe that we are in an epochal cultural shift right now. I mean, truly a historical, multi-century, multi-millennial shift and that we are in the last gasp of the white supremacist patriarchy. I think we are we are living through that moment. <gasps> and it makes sense that as uh, a structure that powerful dies, that it takes a lot of people out with it, right? There's the anger, there's the rage, there's the trying to not lose power. There's all of that, which we are seeing and have seen in full display. But the good news is that system is ending really without us at this point. Me Too, Black Lives Matter were were lances to the heart of that system. And as much as I say we have to be vigilant against it, and I do mean that, it's also dying anyway. Like late stage capitalism, it's all the whole thing is is coming down. So what I focus on these days, more than railing against what has been, because I think all of that was so important, right? We had to tear the scales from people's eyes. I was right there, obviously, in the middle of that. We had to say, hey, wake up, everybody. This is what's been happening, and you need to look. 
but the moment has shifted now. And now we have to focus on building what's going to happen next and what is already happening. And so that's what I spend my days doing. I spend my days figuring out uh, with a colleague, indigenous colleague in Canada, Charlene Sanjanko, we're working on building a new, a new ecosystem for media, what we're calling regenerative media. So we're saying, what does it mean to have healed storytellers? What does it mean to have people telling stories from a healed place rather than a place of trauma? How do we raise money for films and stories generally? How do we make films? How do we treat people? How do we distribute films inside of a regenerative ecosystem? What does that mean? We don't know because it hasn't, we haven't had that before. So every day we're building that, we're building it with each other, we're building it with our students, we're building it with other filmmakers. Um, I'm actually leaving tomorrow for Canada to spend four days with Charlene and a group of other regenerative filmmakers exploring this very question. I've been doing this work for about two or three years. And at the beginning of doing it, I thought, okay, this is the, this is probably the work of the rest of my life is is figuring is like building a bridge to this different future and thinking we're not going to get there in my lifetime, but I'm going to be a part of a bridge building generation for what this will be. And then COVID happened and everything sped up and time compressed and change sped up. And it was just a few weeks ago that I looked at Charlene after one of our meetings and I said, I actually think we're in the future. I think we're over the bridge, like not everybody, but in this world that you and I are existing in Charlene, we're there. We're, we're living this future today. So now the work feels like, oh, now we just got to spread the word. Now we just got to get more people into this future with us. Now we just got to induct people into this different mode of being. And people are so hungry. For it. They're so ready to leave this toxic shithole life we've been in. That's a really good point, because that's what I've been feeling also. You know, when you see what's going on, people don't want to hear that anymore. It's like, okay, let me just be able to pay my bills and buy food. And what gives me hope is I look at the midterm elections. And I really believe that American citizens, who we are and what we are and what we stand for, and this might be Pollyanna, I don't know if that's the artist in me, but that's the artist in me. I believe that we need to create stories. We need to put it out there, let everybody see it, and not in an in-your-face. Mm-hmm. It, it's that we're not trying to, to point fingers. It's like, yeah. let's get back to being human beings yeah, and what gifts we have and what gifts we can offer. Yeah. I agree with you. And actually in the midterms through a strange set of circumstances, I ended up as the campaign manager for a democratic state Senate candidate here in Idaho, which is yeah, quite yeah. red. <laughs> and we won. And we won because the woman actually that we were running against was anti-abortion, had voted for a number of really damaging pieces of legislation that banned abortion in Idaho. And it's exactly that. We told that story. I told my stories to people at doors who started off trying to slam the door in my face. And I said, hey, I'm a human being and here's my story. And by the end of it, they were going to vote for my candidate. And, and, you know, most of Idaho still read, but nothing truly gave me more hope than that experience that people at the end of the day, 
if you stand in front of them and say, hi, I'm just a human being and I'm hurting and I need you to help me, most people, aside from the psychopaths, are going to want to help you. Right. Because the arts do heal and offer us a chance to make connections. Speaking of connections, (laughs) where is this regenerative project? Where is it headed? Like you said, I love what you said, the paradox of, I think we are in the future. That's fascinating. Yeah. So exciting, right? (laughs) We get to live to see it. Yeah. So the company is called Regen Media, R-E-G-E-N Media. You can look it up online. We have a number of initiatives going. You can sign up for the newsletter there. We often do talks. We're teaching a workshop, I think on April 22nd, that's free that anyone can come to. Um, We're doing those quarterly to sort of help, you know, lead people in the direction of what, how to create their projects in a regenerative way. And there are a bunch of other things that you can find on the website as well. And I'll make sure to to share that on the the podcast blog as well. Naomi, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. And I just want to let you know that you are on my radar. I'm invested in you and your work. And if there's anything that I can do to be part of the project and to help to move it forward, just call Fran. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me, Fran. You bet. Find out more about what Fran is up to. Go to her website at firstonlinewithfran.com. This program was produced by March Hare Media and recorded at Wheat Sheet Studio Production.